Good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City. My name is Eric Metaxas. I will be your server uh, for the evening. You can make your way over to the salad bar and I'll be back to take your drink orders. Um, it is hard to believe, but people are still talking. I'm not going to name names, but the initials are Peter Gersh. Where is he? Um, there's still a couple of seats up here if you're looking for seats. Um, it's hard to believe, but 2008 marks the ninth consecutive calendar year of Socrates in the city. Uh, I remember our first uh, gathering. Uh, big fans of the number nine, is that it? Um, thank you. I remember our first gathering um, actually was in my kitchen in the spring of 2000. Uh, it was just me and my wife in our robes. Um, and the board of the Templeton Foundation. Uh, people had told us it couldn't be done, and the Templeton folks agreed. <laughs> so we struggled for many years. But finally, last year, uh, Templeton folks saw us in our street clothes, and anyway, here we are, so thank you. As you know, at Socrates in the City, it's our goal to ask the big questions about what we like to call life, God, and other small topics. Uh, over the last eight years, we've been doing that. Tonight, we continue by asking whether poetry can matter. Uh, as you know, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, and for most of the world throughout history, poetry has been one of the ways that cultures have examined life and the big questions of human existence. Um, I think it's not a big stretch to say that that's no longer the case today, at least not in our culture. So this really is a big question, whether poetry can matter. I'm glad we're asking it, and I'm looking forward to the conversation on it that will follow. Um, I confess that a large part of the reason we're talking about poetry tonight is because poetry is a subject that's very close to my own heart. Uh, I was an English major in college. Um, yes, that's right. I was an English major in college. Uh, and I've read poetry uh, all my life, and I've even written a fair uh, amount of it. Uh, many of the children's books I've written have been in verse. Um, and I remember that it was actually as a child that I came across uh, a, the following poem, which I, I, I instantly committed uh, to memory. I don't remember it, but I think I'd like to... <laughs> please. I'd like to recite it for you now, if you'll let me. Okay, forget it. Uh, no, it's, um, "'Twas in a restaurant they met, Romeo and Juliet. He had no cash to pay the debt, so Romeo owed what Juliet." Isn't that lovely? I don't know who wrote that, but it wasn't me. I think it was John Donne who wrote that. Um, that was one of his body poems, you know. You know he was a, a priest, but he had that whole other side, and I think he wrote that. Um, or maybe, maybe that's late Steve Allen, I don't know. But in any case, I, I remember reading that poem as a, as a boy, and it, it just hooked me. Um, the serious poetry, of course, came later in college. Uh, I remember the first poem I ever read as an undergraduate was titled, The Iliad. 
and not only was it titled The Iliad, but it actually turned out to be The Iliad. Uh, how crazy is that, huh? That's, um, if you can believe it, I read it in the original Lattimore. <laughs> All right, you're smarter than I thought. I always figured, you know, if, it was, if that was good enough for Homer, it's good enough for me. So I, I recommend Lattimore. Um, many of us uh, really had our best experiences uh, with poetry as undergraduates. Uh, I know at least one person in this room had a class at Dartmouth with Robert Frost. Where are you, Father Rutler? Where is he? Where is he? There he is. Is that true? Am I making that up? Robert Frost? Bobby? Bobby Frost? That's, imp- that's impressive. Did you, um, do you know Whitman? <laughs> or you... You know, I was going to write this in Terzé Rima, but they wouldn't even know, you see. It's a John Suckling. I don't know. But that's, that's impressive. We're glad to have you um, here. Um, as an undergraduate, as with many of us, I was exposed for the first time to the great poems in world history. I was uh, required to memorize parts of the Fairy Queen, Chaucer, including some of the naughty bits from the Miller's Tale, remember? Oh, yeah. And... Um, but that brings us to the point that poetry really, at least sometimes, ought to be a lot of fun. Anybody who's read Ogden Nash knows that it can be a lot of fun. And Ogden Nash uh, wrote, I think, what is the shortest poem in the English language. It's titled Fleas. And the poem is Adam Haddam. <laughs> Said Ogden Nash. Um, I tried to write a shorter poem and I failed. But I think I came very close. I may have written the second shortest poem in the English language. It's titled Belly Buttons. Eve and Adam never had them. <laughs> anyway, it's a. Uh, if you can't remember it, the whole text of that is on my website, ericmetaxas.com. And if you go to ericmetaxas.com, the next 24 hours, you get a free cup of soup. So. You have to have the right kind of printer, but whatever. Uh, um, of course, it was after college that I realized that the world of contemporary poetry was kind of in a bad way. Poetry was very rarely fun or even accessible, uh, and it didn't seem that it, it even cared to be. Um, it was not written for a large readership, but for a tiny elite of anti-metrical mandarins, if I may, um, many of whom actually liked John Ashbery. Not that many, but a few. Um, no laughs. No Ashbury laughs. Sad. No, that's good, actually. I'm encouraged. But we're going to hear, I'm sure, how great Ashbury is in a few minutes. But that's all right. It's hard to believe that, you know, previous generations would take volumes of verse into battle with them. Civil War, World War I, they would actually carry um, books of verse. Um, average folks loved, so-called average folks loved Poetry was part of their lives. Uh, many in the public schools, of course, memorized Longfellow's Village Blacksmith, Paul Revere's Ride, Hiawatha. And, of course, we all wonder, so what happened? Um, at least that's what I was thinking. And it was all a little depressing for somebody who loved poetry. But then one day, a few years ago, I received a book in the mail from Mako Fujimura, who may be here, but he's shy. He won't raise his hand. Oh, he, he did. <laughs> it's very brassy of you, Mako. Um, not used to that. Um, the book that Mako mailed me and a few others um, was by a man named Dana Joya, and it was titled, Can Poetry Matter? And when I read the book's title essay, Can Poetry Matter, 
I flipped, not literally, but perhaps literarily. Uh, and then I flipped again when I realized that I was being invited by Mako to meet Mr. Joya and to hear him speak to a group of folks in a loft in Brooklyn. It was all I'd hoped, the talk, not the loft. Um, and I flipped yet a third time when I heard a few years later that President Bush had appointed Mr. Joya to head up the National Endowment for the Arts. It was too much, and if you've ever flipped three times, you know exactly what I mean. But I really couldn't believe it. Um, the NEA's name uh, had been tarnished a bit by such things as I'll not even mention uh, in a mixed audience of august folks, uh, nor even in this group of groundlings and hooligans here tonight. Um, but to think that somebody like um, Dana Joya, who'd written that wonderful essay, would be heading up the NEA just thrilled me. I've met Dana a number of times since then, most recently at a C.S. Lewis conference in Cambridge two years ago, and he's always assured me that he would come and speak at Socrates in the city. And of course, until tonight, that's been a bald-faced lie. <laughs> or, or is it bold-faced? Which is, I always get them confused, bald-faced or bold-faced? He's not gonna answer. No? Bald-faced or bold-faced? I always get them confused. Bold, then it's true. Okay. Bold, thank you. Um, so I want to thank you tonight, uh, Dana Joya, for repenting of this lamentable pattern of deceit and being with us here this evening. We have my very dear friend Mark Berner to thank for bringing you to your senses and helping you avoid jail time. Mark, I don't know where he is, is the chairman of the board of Socrates in the city. Uh, if you have any questions uh, about something that maybe didn't go as you'd like it to go this evening, please talk to Mark uh, when this is... Over, Mark Berner, chairman of the board, right over there. Um, okay, some facts about Dana Joya, and then I'll shut up. By the way, Joya is pronounced Joya. <laughs> Dana Joya is, of course, the head of the NEA, uh, but he's also achieved, uh, he's, he's also internationally acclaimed as a poet, and he won the 2002 American Book Award for his book, Interrogations at Noon. He is a native Californian of Mexican and Italian descent and has degrees from Stanford and Harvard. Boo hiss. His collection of essays, Can, po Can Poetry Matter, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and it's credited with helping to revive the role of poetry in American public culture. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. I am very, very thrilled about this. Mr. Joya was also an executive at General Foods who oversaw the Jell-O and Kool-Aid accounts, and that is true. That's true. I didn't make that up. And of course, it's not so strange. Wallace Stevens was an insurance executive, and William Carlos Williams was a doctor, and Ezra Pound was a Nazi sympathizer. <laughs> so, par for the course. Don't be ashamed, really. Don't be, don't be ashamed. We've all made mistakes. And I didn't even mention T.S. Eliot's anti-Semitism, so we don't, right? Okay, Ezra Pound, right, next. Um, Mr. Joya is also a prolific anthologist. Now, did you actually study anthology? I don't know. It's, um, I don't know. He was also a longtime commentator on American culture and literature for the BBC, or what, what I like to call the BBC. Um, 
And he's also written opera libretti. Not librettos. Are you sure it's not librettos? Um, Anyway, uh, it says also that he's an active translator of poetry from Latin, Italian, German, and Romanian. Um, That is, I think, a little bit impressive. I want to ask, what is the Romanian for libretti? Do we know? Libretti is always libretti, you know? You can't translate it. Uh, In 2001, uh, Dana Joya founded Teaching Poetry, a conference dedicated to improving high school teaching of poetry. Hurrah, hurrah, again. He's also, the co- he's also the founder and co-director of the Westchester University Poetry Conference, the nation's largest annual all-poetry writing conference, and he's been awarded five honorary, honorary doctorates. You, you wouldn't want to sell one of those, would you? <laughs> who, ne- who needs five? That's, um, anyway, uh, more good news. He was renominated by President Bush in November 2006 for a second term unlike Mr. Rumsfeld, and he was unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate. That's very impressive, sincerely. He and his wife, Mary, have two sons. Um, In a moment, we'll hear from Dr. Joya. Um, As we usually do, uh, we're going to have a time of Q&A after after Dana Joya speaks, and we will end sharply by 8 30. Okay. And now, of course, it's our very great pleasure to hear from Mr. Dana Joya. You know, Eric, I don't know how to uh, thank you for the introduction except to say it's always dangerous to have a Greek introduce a Sicilian. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, what I thought I would do tonight... Uh, is uh, in- introduce myself, talk a little bit about uh, the art of poetry, and uh, then do some questions and answers. Is there an echo that you're getting now? Yeah, I am too. Uh, let's see if we can... Did we somehow disturb the, the auditory gods? Uh, is it better now? Okay, good. Uh, but before we do anything else, let's just do a moment of poetry. And uh, this is a uh, poem I'm sure almost all of you will recognize. It's from Shakespeare's As You Like It. Uh, There's a character in As You Like It, uh, an old duke who's had his throne usurped by his brother. He's living in exile in the forests of Arden. And in the Elizabethan age, the forests are not glamorous places. They're cold, they're uncomfortable, they're dangerous. And uh, his board of directors, uh, you you know, the noblemen in exile with him, keep advising him to make you know, peace, to go back to the court. And this is the advice that he gives them, which I think about a lot in Washington. Uh, uh, now, my co-mates and brothers in exile, hath not old custom made this life more sweet than that of painted pomp? Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Here feel we but the penalty of Adam, the season's difference, as when the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter wind, which when it bites and blows upon my body, even till I shrink with cold, I smile and say, here is no flattery. These are counselors who feelingly persuade me what I am. Sweet 
are the uses of adversity. And this, our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. It seems to me that, you know, if you wanted a motto to be uh, the chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, sweet are the uses of adversity, uh, you know, would be a good one, uh, you know, at least during the last 20 years. Uh, and I, but I do think it's true. And, and I uh, think of that, too, because it really talks about the, you know, the two poles in life, the life that, in which you're enmeshed in activity, and then also the life where you're, you have the luxury, you know, or the penalty, in some cases, of, of contemplating it. Uh, I uh, realized that, you know, without ever preparing, uh, you know, myself, ever thinking that I would end up in public service, that I had unwittingly been preparing to be chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts all my life. Uh, and my life began in a town called Hawthorne, California. Does anybody here know Hawthorne? Uh, got one or two people. If, uh, if you've seen, there's two, mo two very famous movies that are set in Hawthorne, Pulp Fiction and... Uh, <laughs> Jackie Brown uh, by you know Quentin Tarantino, and if you know those films, they beautifully capture the charm of my hometown. Uh, this is a really tough uh, working class neighborhood. Um, you know, it's now almost entirely Spanish speaking. When I was there, it was about half Mexican and half largely people that were you know Dust Bowl refugees. And you know, I was raised in this kind of odd family. My father's uh, family had come from Sicily. And he was the only person in his family who did not marry a Sicilian. Um, and marry, he married a Mexican, uh, which was, you know, considered really quite scandalous. Uh, and we were in two triplexes, two, uh, three, three small apartments next to each other. And five of those six apartments had my Sicilian relations uh, who were, you know, preparing me, uh, as was indeed the Catholic Church, you know, down the street, you know, uh, for life in the 12th century. Um, and uh, the, the no one above uh, you know above you know forty uh, spoke English you know very much, um, and you know I really didn't. And I'm not making this up. I really hardly I couldn't conceive of the notion of a grandparent who didn't speak English with an accent or didn't speak a foreign language. It wasn't until I went to Stanford that I realized there were actually English speakers in the United States. You know, uh, you know, for several generations, uh, and. Uh, and I had this very odd childhood, which I think is a typical American trilingual childhood. You know, there was the language of the old world, uh, you know, which was, in this case was Italian or, you know, with my, the other family Mexican, you know, sort of, you know, there were dialects of Spanish and Italian. Uh, there was, you know, the language of the new world, which was English, which we learned in school. And then I was fortunate enough to be in the Catholic Church when they still spoke Latin, you know, uh, you know in, in the rituals. So there was really the language of the next world, uh, you know, in church. Uh, and, you know, I think people that, you know, I, you know, this is actually much more typical, I think, of American backgrounds. I think, you know, uh, you know Jews who spoke Yiddish at home and English in school and Hebrew at, at Hebrew school, uh, you know, had a very similar experience. And I realized, now this, this is a, you, you know, what I'm about to say is a classic line in, in homosexual narratives. Uh, you know, I realized at an early age I was different from the other boys. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the reason I was different was that, you know, when I heard beautiful music, it just stopped me in my tracks. 
you know, when I saw, you know, a reproduction of a painting, it just, it, it fascinated me in a way that, you know, none of my uh, friends seemed to experience. And I, I had no idea where these things were made. Uh, I knew, had no idea of the world which would produce and cultivate them. But I knew almost from the beginning I wanted to go someplace where I could hang around them. I think a formative experience was that my mother, who was you know, a woman really of, no mu of not much education, had nonetheless memorized a great many poems. And she had gone to school at a time when poetry was still taught in, a, in, uh, in the old-fashioned way, which uh, you know, we've recently been taught was repressive and awful. Uh, and it, it couldn't, and almost, like almost everything else that you hear about poetry nowadays, the, exactly the opposite is true. Uh, it was a way, in a sense, and think of the metaphor of having it by heart. Having language and sentiment uh, and impulse and beauty inside of you uh, that you could carry with you. And my mother really, for you know, uh, no reason, would simply quote poems, and she would often read them to me. Uh, and uh, so I, mean, I would, you know, suddenly she would just say, you know, it was many and many a year ago in this kingdom by the sea, that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And that maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea. And we loved with a love that was more than a love, I and my Annabel Lee. And so poetry was something that I never conceivably imagined was an elitist art. It wasn't until I went to Stanford and Harvard they told me that you know, it was a, you know, really an art of the elite and that common people didn't like it and, uh, and you know, that they didn't understand it. Uh, and, and also it wasn't until I was in middle age and I had it in my own life suffered enough that I also understood one of the other uses of poetry. And, and I've never seen anybody acknowledge this. And uh, is that there are sorrows, there are fears, there are desires, there are memories that we have, which we really can't speak about. And what poetry does is, is give us a, f a vessel for our feeling. And that the very poems that my mother quoted me were telling me things about her life that she would never have told me directly. Um, you know, I didn't know this at the time, but, you know, like so much else in life, you only figure things out retroactively. But she would also, you know, she loved Ogden Nash, too. I mean, I don't know how she ever discovered Ogden Nash, but, you know, and, you know, she, you know she would say, you know, when called by a panther, don't anther. Uh, <laughs> and uh, a little longer than Adam had him. Uh, and, and so it, was, it just struck me as that poetry, music, and, and things like this were arts whose pleasures were accessible, were available to anyone who was alert and curious and intelligent, and uh, that the purpose of art was not to exclude people, but to include people. That actually art had a, an incredible power. And what I'm saying to you right now is, um, is considered nonsense at virtually every university in the United States, that art really has nothing to do with ideology. It's actually a different form of communicating. And so let me talk about poetry and tell you why I believe that. There are 
ways in which we understand the world and we speak about the world that are different from one another. I mean, an obvious one is the scientific view, where we can look at things, ultimately we can take them, you know, through biology and chemistry, down to numbers. And it is a way of explaining with enormous accuracy uh, how things in the world operate. And by mastering this, by investing in this, we're able to create drugs, we're able to, to have uh, planes fly through the air, we're able to do all kinds of enormously complex things that would seem impossible to people who did not have that capability, that form of knowing, that form of understanding. There's another way, which is what we're using right now, which is conceptual language, ideas uh, in which you explain things in a kind of neutral way so that people can uh, analytically understand them. That's the language of, of the humanities, of the social sciences. It's the language of, of, uh, the, of journalism. But it isn't, for the most part, the language of everyday life. When we speak to one another under most circumstances, under most human circumstances, when we hear people, we're actually getting close to the third kind of knowledge, which is poetic knowledge which is to say there is a way of experiencing the world and explaining the world uh, in language which does not separate the mind from the heart, the imagination from the senses. It includes your intuition, your memory, your physical body. Uh, and it strikes you holistically in which you, in a sense, feel things, feel your way through things before you understand them. There are poems that we love that we don't fully understand at first. In fact, there are poems that we love and we understand one way, and then 10 years later we understand them differently. We know this from paintings. We can see things about the world and ourselves through images, through music, through poetry, in a way uh, that is absolutely true, and in fact, truer, that gets at truths that the scientific and conceptual language cannot. Um, when my love swears that she, this is a sonnet by Shakespeare, when my love swears that she is made of truth, I do believe her, though I know she lies, <laughs> that she might think me some untutored youth, unlearned in the world's false subtleties. Thus, vainly thinking that she thinks me young, although we know my years are past the best, simply I credit her false speaking tongue. A simple truth is thus on both sides suppressed. But wherefore say I not she is unjust? And wherefore says she not that I am old? Ah, love's best habit is in seeming trust. An age in love loves not to have years told. Therefore I lie with her, and she with me, and by our falsehoods we both flattered be. Uh, certainly, there's been fewer poems truer about love and marriage uh, than that one. Uh, there are many times that if you were listening to language conceptually, and, and, and for example, your wife asks, how do I look? She's not asking for a conceptual answer, but a poetic one. Uh, the, 
Now, there's also a fourth way of knowledge, which I don't want to talk about, which is mystical knowledge, which is religious knowledge, which is, a, which is in a sense of spiritual knowing that is somehow beyond conceptual language, beyond words. But if we talk about poetic, and I'm talking about poetic in the Greek sense that Lattimore would have understood, of poesis, the made thing, this is why we have art. This is why art does something for us that nothing else will do. And when we pull art out of education, when we pull art out of worship, we pull art out of public life, we impoverish it because we lose one of the most powerful ways that people communicate to one another. The architecture of a post office tells you everything about what the government thinks about you. Uh, and, uh, and if you compare you know, uh, you know, the post offices built in the 20s and 30s with the ones built in the 90s and the knots, uh, you know, it says something about our vision of being a citizen, our vision of the state. Now, specifically poetry, you have been taught, we've all been taught, is a sophisticated, difficult, intellectual art. Nothing really could be further from the truth. If you go back uh, in history, as far back as we can go, or if you look in anthropology as broadly as we go, poetry is uh, what postmodernists tell us does not exist, a human universal. Every culture in the world, either independently uh, you know, or you know, through some secret uh, conspiracy, has developed poetry. Poetry, in fact, uh, also develops and perfects itself before writing. It is, in a sense, a pre-literate technology so that people know what they need to know. Now, uh, Robert Frost once was asked to define poetry, and he said, it is a way of remembering those things that it would impoverish us to forget. And every culture in the world, because think of how precariously most people, most tribes, most cities, most states have existed throughout all of history. How close they could come to annihilation, to extinction, to disbursement. They've understood that a people can't know where it's going unless it's remembered where it's been. And what poetry was, was a way of remembering those things and putting them into a form that is so deeply wedded with delight that people want to know it, want to hear it. Now, even today, when you know, the poet is no longer this tribal, uh, central tribal figure, the, the memory of the tribe, the poet becomes a kind of memory of humanity. Uh, anyone with children uh, knows how impossible it is to teach your kids the things that they need to know to go through life. You know, you can teach them to drive, you know, you can teach them, you know, techniques, but in a sense, teaching them uh, what we would call, for lack of a better word, wisdom, you know, is something they have to learn, you know, in the only school available, you know, which is of hard knocks. And what poetry does, in a sense, is embody, you know, those lessons, embody that knowledge so that uh, it may not save you the mistakes, 
But as you make the mistake, you acknowledge that, yes, yes, I guess I've heard about this thing called love. Uh, yes, yes, I've heard about this. And so it's a way, in a sense, of embodying these holistic truths that there are no other way of, of giving you uh, in a way that you want to hear. Because poetry always mixes the wisdom with pleasure. Uh, pleasure is, in a sense, the lead of all arts. And when art becomes disconnected from that, it loses its meaning. And so what, what we're trying to do in poetry, in a funny way, is to maintain a kind of openness and alertness to the full range of meanings around us that every one of the conventions of our daily life continually narrow to uh, make us emotionally alert, spiritually alert, in a way sensually alert uh, to the richness of reality. This is not uh, a need confined to intellectuals. You know, it is a general human need. And the greatest poets have always written in a way, and I think this is the secret of poetry, which in a sense says two things at once. You know, one is the message on the surface, which is uh, linked with the delights of form, of music, of experience, of storytelling. And then wrapped around that, you know, is essentially a deeper thing, which is in some ways the game they play is that the poets and the audience, uh, you know, get something about it too. And you'll see these two things snaking. Well, let me read you a few of my own poems, and I'll make a few comments along the way. Uh, and then, you know, we'll go, you know, because could, one could talk, and, and one often does, at great length on these subjects. Um, as a poet, you know, there's two kinds of poems in my, in my experience. One of the ones, and this is hard if you're not a poet, if you're not a writer, which you really don't know what they're about until they're done. You know, you get an image, you get a line, and you begin to play with it, and you begin to shape it in some ways. And actually, sometimes even when it's done, you don't know what it's about. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's almost formed out of the sound of the words, the music, the situation. And the other is easy to explain, because these are things that really happened. And there, you try to take an experience and shape it in a way, you know, which gives it the immediacy uh, of the original, you know, although usually in a slightly smaller shape. Uh, the first poem uh, is based on an incident that shortly after my wife and I first got married, we came home one night, and there was a bouquet of flowers on our doorstep in our apartment. And it wasn't addressed to anybody, uh, and it was signed only with a first name. Unfortunately, it was one of those first names that could be either a boy's name or a girl's name. And so we went to the person next door, and they didn't, the, the lady there wasn't expecting flowers. So I claimed I didn't know anybody of this, of this name who had sent me flowers, and, and so did my wife. So we took them in, we put them on the kitchen table, and they sat there sowing dissent. Uh, <laughs> and I wrote this poem called, Thanks for Remembering Us. The flowers, sent here by mistake, signed with a name that no one knew, are turning bad. What shall we do? Our neighbor says they're not for her, and no one has a birthday near. We should thank someone for the blunder. Is one of us having an affair? At first we laugh, and then we wonder. The iris was the first to die, enshrouded in its sickly, sweet, and lingering perfume. 
The roses fell one petal at a time, and now the ferns are turning dry. The room smells like a funeral, but there they sit, too much at home, accusing us of some small crime, like love forgotten, and we can't throw out a gift we've never owned. The, uh, the, but, you know, sometimes you don't really know what a poem is about until it's not done. I think it was 12 years ago, NPR asked me if I would write a poem for New Year's Day. You know, my assumption was that they figured that, you know, most people would either be hungover or watching a football game, and so they could safely run a poem on air, you know, without, you know, uh, in, you know getting too much public ire. So I wrote an elegant 36-line poem about the idea of New Year's. Um, and then after it was broadcast, I said, well, you know, before I, um, you know, I publish, let me work on a little more. And so about a week later, it was 32 lines. And then it went down to 28, to 24. About a month later, it was 20 lines, then 18. And I was hoping it would settle at 14 so I could call it a sonnet. But it went right to 12. Then it went to 10. Then it went to 8, where I realized it was verbose. And uh, it ended up being only six lines long and no longer having anything at all to do with New Year's. Uh, and uh, and it, the poem is called Unsaid. And it's, and it's about, essentially, how m- much of the things we experience in life are invisible to anyone but us because they go on inside us. So much of what we live goes on inside. The diaries of grief, the tongue-tied aches of unacknowledged love are no less real for having passed unsaid. What we conceal is often more than what we dare confide. Think of the letters that we write our dead. Um, you know, then, um, you know, there's, there are poems that, you know, sort of are in between, you know, which begin with something that's happening and then go someplace you don't expect. Um, this is a, a poem that I began about 25 years ago, and uh, I wrote a couple of lines, and then I could never finish it. And now, going back to it, it becomes a different poem than it ever could have been, because uh, it's it was based on something. But now I'm thinking of that event a quarter of a century later, the apple orchard. You won't remember the apple orchard we wandered through one April afternoon, climbing the hill behind the empty farm. A city boy, I'd never seen a grove burst in full flower or breathed the bittersweet perfume of blossoms mingled with the dust. A quarter mile of trees and fragrant rows arching above us, we walked the aisle alone in spring's ephemeral cathedral. We had the luck, if you can call it that, of having been in love, but never lovers. The bright flame burning, fed by pure desire. Nothing consumed, 
such secrets brought to light. There was a moment when I stood behind you, reached out to spin you toward me, but I stopped. What more could I have wanted from that day? Everything, of course. Perhaps that was the point, to learn that what we will not grasp is lost. Uh, uh, then uh, I'm going to read another poem that really happened. Um, it's um, this takes place. My parents, you know, at the end of their life, moved up to Northern California, where they bought an old uh, chicken farm, where they put in an orchard. And uh, there's a custom in Sicily that when your first child is born, you save the umbilical cord, you wrap the roots, uh, you wrap it around the root of a tree, and you plant it. Uh, I don't know if they do this in Greece, uh, you know. Uh, but you know the symbolism of it is pretty clear. You know, it's a way literally of rooting your clan into the land that feeds it, and. Uh, uh, but in this case, rather than one of the traditional trees, you know, which is an olive tree or a fig tree, we're planting a California redwood. And the poem is addressed to that tree. Um, so the you in the poem is the tree. Um, I wrote this poem uh, shortly after the death of my first son, who died at four months of sudden infant death syndrome. Um, everything in the poem is true. Um, planting a sequoia. All afternoon, my brothers and I have worked in the orchard, digging this hole, laying you into it. Rain blackened the horizon, but cold winds kept it over the Pacific, and the sky above us stayed the dull gray of an old year coming to an end. In Sicily, a father plants a tree to celebrate his first son's birth. I would have done the same proudly laying new stock into my father's orchard, a green sapling rising among the twisted apple boughs, a promise of new fruit in other autumns. But today, we kneel in the cold planting you, our native giant, defying the practical custom of our fathers, wrapping in your roots a lock of hair, a piece of an infant's birth cord, all that remains above earth, of a firstborn son, a few stray atoms brought back to the elements. We will give you what we can, our labor and our soil, water drawn from the earth when the skies fail, nights scented with the ocean fog, days softened by the circuit of bees. We plant you in the corner of the grove, bathed in western light, a slender shoot against the sunset. And when our family is no more, all of his unborn brothers dead, the house torn down, every niece and nephew scattered, his mother's beauty, ashes in the air, I want you to stand among strangers, all young and ephemeral to you, silently keeping the secret of your birth. Um, the, uh, the, let me uh, 
change the mood. You can already see that, you know, one of the things that I liked about poetry was that was the kind of noises you could make when you put words together. I mean, that's, I think, the chief way that poetry delivers pleasure, you know, is to those, you know, just the arrangement of sounds, the musicality. And it's both the, the music of, of physical words, also the music of meanings, especially, you know, odd rhymes, juxtapositions, metaphors. And, you know, I was especially intoxicated, you know, by late romantic poetry, you know, it's what we, you know, call, conventionally call Victorian. But imagine being in an age like Tennyson where you could begin a poem, Come into the garden, Maud, for the black bat night has flown. Come into the garden, Maud, I am here at the gate alone. And the spice of the woodbine is wafted aloft, and the musk of the rose is blown. I mean, wowie zowie. I mean, isn't that good stuff? I mean, uh, I mean, now my problem uh, was that, you know, for about this time, you know, I mean, I was, my day job was selling Kool-Aid and Jell-O and Baker's chocolate, not in themselves uh, experiences that would bring you up to the high romantic mode. Um, but I came across a tragic love affair. Um, a friend of mine had a superannuated orange cat named Fred. And she decided to brighten up his twilight years by bringing him home a child bride. Uh, and it was a very unusual May-December marriage because the young cat was greatly smitten by Fred. Uh, but alas, it was a little too late in December for Fred to reciprocate. And so every month the young cat went into heat, chased poor Fred around the house and garden, and nothing ever happened. Uh, and so I wrote the cat this poem. Uh, Come into the garden, Fred. Uh, for the neighborhood tabby is gone. Come into the garden, Fred. I have nothing but my flea collar on. And the scent of the catnip has gone to my head. I'll wait by the screen door till dawn. The fireflies court in the sweet gum tree. A night jar calls from the pine, and she seems to say in her rhapsody, Oh, mustard brown Fred, be mine. <laughs> and the full moon sets my whiskers afire, and the fur goes erect on my spine. I hear the frogs in the muddy lake croaking from shore to shore. They've one swift season to soothe their ache. In autumn they sing no more. So ignore me now, and you'll hear my meow as I scratch all night by the door. Um, the, uh, um, let, me, uh, let me just do um, three more poems. Um, actually, two and a half. Um, the... The older I get, uh, the more I recognize that we live our lives by stories. We have a story we say about ourselves, and as our circumstances of our lives change, we have to change the story. Uh, sometimes the police catch you doing this. Uh, you know, but it's, it's the healthy human instinct, which is one reason 
While literature must play a part in education, we need to understand the full range of stories, the plot turns of life, the, the secret uh, plot developments of life. And healthy people are people who, in a sense, have a story uh, that they can occupy. And, and people who are in deep spiritual trouble have a story that's going nowhere. And in fact, people that are suicides, you know, have a story they can't take anywhere. They're trapped in it, uh, in a pain that's intolerable. And so, uh, so that is a, hum a universal human need. Is this thing acting up again? Uh, okay, I'm getting a bit echoey. The other thing is that love and marriage uh, is where, in a sense, you find somebody whose story you can wrap around yours. And that what marriage is, is a kind of, um, a, you know, a good marriage is an endless conversation uh, in which you never lose, you know, uh, more than momentary interest, you know, in terms of this, the story of the other person. I mean, uh, and, and that you find it's this kind of sustained attention. And... Uh, I wrote a poem that wraps those two ideas around each other. It borrows a line from Midsummer Night's Dream, which is, uh, the lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact, which means that all three of them are crazy. Uh, this is called The Lunatic, the Lover, and the Poet. And it's a love poem, but you won't really realize until the second stanza. It's a double sonnet, but a very highly irregular one. I figured if you had a double theme, you should have a double form. The tales we tell are either false or true, but neither purpose is the point. We weave the fabric of our own existence out of words, and the right story tells us who we are. Perhaps it is the words that summon us. The tale is often wiser than the teller, there is no naked truth but what we wear. So let me bring this story to our bed. The world, I say, depends upon a spell spoken each night by lovers unaware of their own sorcery. In innocence or agony, the same words must be said, or the restless moon will darken in the sky. The night grow still, the winds of dawn expire. And if I'm wrong, it cannot be by much. We know our own existence came from touch, the new soul summoned into life by lust, and love's shy tongue awakens in such fire, flesh on flesh and midnight whispering, as if the only purpose of desire were to explore its infinite unfolding. And so, my love, we are two lunatics, secretaries to the wordless moon, lying awake together or apart, transcribing every touch or aching absence into our endless, intimate palaver. Body to body, naked to the night, Appareled only in our utterance. Let me um, 
end with a ballad and then just a little, uh, a little poem you've heard before. Um, I love the tune of the ballad. It's the way that our culture tells stories. Uh, but I've never published a ballad in which I haven't been immediately attacked, you know, by people of proper taste, you know. Uh, and I think it is because there's a physicality. And once again, it's, ballads are not conceptual. You know, there might be ideas in them, but it's a way of feeling a story, feeling your way through it. And, uh, you know, I think it embarrasses contemporary critics. Also, they have a terrible suspicion that uh, someone without a graduate degree might like them. Uh, 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 this is a ballad that begins at a wedding, and it's called Summer Storm. We stood on the rented patio while the party went on inside. You knew the groom from college. I was a friend of the bride. We hugged the brownstone wall behind us to keep our dress clothes dry and watched the sudden summer storm floodlit against the sky. The rain was like a waterfall of brilliant beaded light, cool and silent as the stars the storm hid from the night. To my surprise, you took my arm a gesture you didn't explain, and we spoke in whispers as if we too might imitate the rain. Then suddenly the storm receded as quickly as it came. The doors behind us opened up. The hostess called your name. I watched you merge into the crowd, aloof and yet polite. We didn't speak another word except to say good night. Why does that evening's memory return with this night's storm, a party 20 years ago? Its disappointments warm. There are so many might-have-beens, what-ifs that won't stay buried, other cities, other jobs, strangers we might have married. And memory insists on pining for places it never went, as if life might be happier just by being different. Unsaid. So much of what we live goes on inside. The diaries of grief, the tongue-tied aches of unacknowledged love are no less real for having passed unsaid, what we conceal is always more than what we dare confide. Think of the letters that we write our dead. Thank you very much. Uh, the New York Sun had an article um, today, in fact. Yeah, it was a review of Adam Kirsch's new book. Right, and I was, I was just simply going to lob you a softball here and ask you if you would comment on literary criticism of poetry. Uh, it is appalling. It's awful. It's pretentious. It's boring. Uh, uh, you, uh, if you love poetry, you can barely push your way through most of it. Uh, 
there are a few really good critics in the country. Adam Kirsch is one. So I think the New York Sun has done something remarkable by recruiting this guy and giving him space. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the three best young critics right now in the country, uh, two of them are in New York, uh, Kirsch and a guy named David Yezzi, uh, who uh, is at the new criterion right now, was at the YMHA earlier. And then by some wonderful conjunction of the stars and planets, Christian Wyman became editor of poetry. Uh, and he's the third one. So, you know, Wyman, um, uh, you, know, you know, Kirsch, and Yezzy. But here's one of the issues. Let's say you are a great poet critic right now. You know, where are you going to find a journal that will give you space to write well, that won't make you dumb things down, and will pay you? You know, uh, with somebody, if somebody knows, let me know. Uh, you know, I mean, you really do, you know, you really do, in a sense, have a tough road to hoe. And there's only a very, very few journals that, that still believe in this. And so, uh, but, but I believe that to have a great culture, you have to have great critics. And you have to have critics who engage themselves in the arts, not as a narrow, professional, professorial road to tenure, uh, but as, in a sense, a, you know, a broad, uh, you know, sort of cultural conversation out of which an age... Uh, you know, uh, discovers itself. I mean, and this is, uh, you know, since Dick Cavett's in the audience, you know, uh, why are there no Dick Cavett shows anymore? I mean, I could watch uh, John Updike, John Cheever, people like this on there and, and have in here a conversation uh, at a level that would be inconceivable today. I mean, so our whole culture has been terribly dumbed down, and most of the university uh, humanists have retreated into a conversation among themselves, uh, which has almost no interest to people outside of this. This is a, a, an enormous impoverishment of our society, of our culture, and the arts. Yeah. Uh, before we go to our, our uh, first two questions, these are wonderful people. I'm excited about these questions, whatever they are. I have a question. Maybe you can. Yeah. Um, you didn't talk tonight. I thought you'd talk a little bit about sort of some of the things you're doing to uh, revive uh, poetry um, in the culture and um, basically that. Would you talk just a Well, I, I mean, I'll talk about in, in, in officially at the NEA right now what we're doing. Um, I've made a, a, a number of radical changes at the NEA. Um, they're not the radical changes that people think that I've made. Um, and I, but I'll tell you the, the you know, the, the two biggest ones are, um, you know, the history of the NEA is about creating more art, about fostering creativity. Uh, I believe the problem today is not in economic terms supply, but demand. We have 60 million students who have had arts education systematically removed from uh, schools by local, county, state uh, school boards while the federal government stood by indifferent. Uh, we are producing a generation of Americans uh, who not only don't know enough about, about the arts, but more importantly don't know enough, enough about themselves because arts and arts education is not, as people in the university tell us, about producing more artists. It's about producing complete human beings. In the same way that, that uh, you know, 
So what we've tried to do is to do something quite simple uh, and counterintuitive to, unfortunately, you know, people uh, in higher education, is that I do not believe uh, that excellence and democracy are irreconcilable concepts. And so we've simply decided that we will bring the best arts possible to the broadest audience possible, and we will serve all Americans, regardless of where they are, uh, you know, what they make, et cetera, et cetera. So to give you an example, we have 65 distinguished theatrical companies that we are helping tour. They have been to 1,800 cities, 3,000 high schools, uh, as well as about, you know, two dozen military bases uh, due to, uh, you know, a million dollars we were able to talk the Pentagon out of. Uh, we've got, given, we've therefore given employment to 2,000 actors who would otherwise be waiting on tables or doing, you know, dinner theater of a, you're, you're a good man, Charlie Brown, uh, <laughs> and given them a chance not to do one, two, three, four, five performances, but 80 performances, 100 performances of Othello or Romeo and Juliet. Uh, we have given 1,800 presenters, people that have auditoriums, cultural facilities, a chance to book classical drama and not feel they're going to lose money. And we have, believe it or not, in many communities, given the local premiere of a guy named Bill Shakespeare. He's a comer. You know, you know watch out for his name. You'll, see, you'll hear it again. Uh, we've, meanwhile, given 16 million kids free material uh, on Shakespeare. We've brought over a million kids into an equity performance, probably twice that many in terms of have seen it in their, in their high schools when we brought this. So we're 70% of these kids have never seen any play, period. So, you know, we are uh, gladdening the hearts of English teachers. We're employing actors. Uh, and we're strengthening the finances of theater companies. But most important, uh, you know, we're bringing the power of great literature to millions of kids. We have a program called The Big Read, in which a community chooses a book. We've got, at this point, 21 books that we've developed materials for that range from The Great Gatsby and The Grapes of Wrath and Age of Innocence to things like Fahrenheit 451, To Kill a Mockingbird, Their Eyes Were Watching God, uh, in which we create these partnerships of 100 or 200 uh, organizations within a city, the schools, the libraries, but you know, businesses, uh, uh, and uh, create a month-long festival around a book where, it's, where the kid may have something amazing happen. The kid may read a book in high school that they see mentioned elsewhere in their life. You know, in fact, it might even be a book that their parent or their grandparent or their neighbor or a stranger on the street is reading to insist that perhaps in American cultural and civic life, books are something we might have in common, that a community might have it in common. We've created a national poetry recitation contest where kids compete at a classroom level, school level, town level, region, state, and national level, memorizing and reciting poems in competition. I think, you know, the educators were horrified they were doing anything in competition, and I said, that's why people feel sports are so boring, you know. Uh, uh, someone wins. Uh, kids love it. Uh, you know, we have to keep the kids out of it. We have, you know, more kids than we have money. So this is the sort of things that we're doing. We have, we've created a national uh, introduction to jazz that is taught during uh, Black History Month, which gives, you know, kids uh, an introduction to this great American musical form. We've designed it, since we know there's no music classes left, 
where you can not only teach it in music, but we have a separate way of teaching it in civics, in history, uh, social studies, or even geography. So each day it's how jazz moved from city to city. So these are the kind of things we're doing. And in the process, we're employing you know, really thousands of artists, uh, you know, critics, uh, in, a, in a sense, to, you know, to bring these things. So, uh, so my inspiration on this is really the WPA, you know, which was that brief moment in American history you know, where they thought that we're intellectuals and everybody else were talking to one another. Thank you for uh, your earlier demonstration, I suppose, of, of how enjoyment is, in fact, central to art. Um, I appreciate that. And in many ways, your last response answered the question, but I'm at the mic, so I'll ask it anyway. Yep. Um, uh, which is, uh, as, as eloquent as your um, uh, lecture was about the, um, the non-elitism of poetry, um, in many ways, one could fear that, that poetry is the canary in the mine shaft for the written word at large. Um, and, I mean, as you know better than anyone here, or certainly more comprehensively than anyone here, um, how little uh, the written word is, is central to, to cultural practice now. Um, how uh, how does, does a, a body of people like this in this room um, attempt to... Um, forestall that increasing marginalization of the written word as fewer and fewer people are reading those books that um, even these kids are hearing about in another part of their life? Well, it's a big question, but I mean, let me just begin by two things. The moment that we cease to believe that you can shape the society in which you live, then everything's lost. Uh, I mean, I... The history of America, I think, you know, bears this out. We have the power, in a sense, to create, in many ways, the culture and the society in which we want to live. It doesn't happen instantly. It's difficult. Uh, if the people in this room put their mind to it, we could change the country. Not in every way at once, but we could make one or two big changes. That's all it would take. I mean, uh, and you see again and again examples in history for this. Uh, but, you know, there has to be, in a sense, you know, a plan. You know, what, uh, what I've tried to do at the federal government, and please don't throw rocks at me, uh, is I don't believe the federal government should tell you what to do. I really don't. I don't think it should tell you what to read or anything else. We've issued some reports. Uh, uh, do you, where, where's the, there's, an, I believe, enough copies of this report. This is just the executive summary. Uh, one reporter said, well, how do you expect anybody to read a 99-page report, and I feel like calling him up and saying, that's why we put the 10-page executive summary at the front. Uh, uh, if you, this thing will tell you how bad it is in the United States. It, this documents your, and, and gives exact numbers to your worst fears, but it also is a rather inspiring thing, because this will show you, I mean, fairly in, in a factual and really, I think, non-controvertible uh, way, that reading changes lives. Uh, you know, people that read uh, do better in their life economically, socially, civically, personally. Um, so, you know, what I think, you know, uh, I'm trying to do this is to create a national discussion based on facts versus self-serving recommendations about how serious it is and what's at stake. I mean, you look at this, you'll realize that prosperity and freedom 
are ultimately at stake. And so I, you know, challenge you because every other federal report says the recommendation is give my agency more money, right? You know, but that's why we didn't put a recommendation. We wanted no recommendation on this because I don't want to dictate things and I don't want to be self-serving. But, but there is a, a crying need to address this. Now, saying that, I can be really smug because I'm a poet. Uh, uh, you don't have to read to get my art. I can say it to you. Uh, it would be hard for Tolstoy to come here tonight and read War and Peace, you know. It's a very different sort of thing. But what I fear is that, and I talk about this in the title essay of Disappearing Ink, uh, that we're coming into a society that's going to look more like the Renaissance than the early 20th century. Now, that's okay for poets. We did real well in the Renaissance. But that reading will become increasingly a high-level skill uh, of a social elite and that the average people are already going into a, a kind of, of verbal culture. These, um, now, somebody can say, well, you know, through most of history, people didn't read. And I'll say, you're absolutely right, and through most of history, people weren't free. Uh, through most of history, people lived in, uh, in autocratic states, and people weren't prosperous. You know, and I think that's really at, at risk. If you don't believe me, just look at the statistics in this. It's free. Please take one. Uh, okay. well, uh, ma'am, there's, uh, there's a woman here who wants a question, but, 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 you, but you have to go to the microphone. To the microphone. Yeah. We're, and we're probably not going to have time for everyone, yeah. so we'll try to keep it going. No, there's a woman here who's not going to have time. Okay, uh, Andrea, please. Hi. I was really interested in what you were saying about uh, much of the strength of poetry has always been how it articulates, uh, articulates the inarticulable, whether that's through our own kind of profound inability to express what's really on our minds or on our hearts, or whether that was kind of cultural mores that prevented one from expressing oneself. And I think it's also interesting that in this day and age where um, we're encouraged to express ourselves even if we shouldn't be, that poetry has kind of seen a downturn. And as you were talking about that, um, I really thought, I've been studying Arabic for the past year, and there's actually still a huge popular culture surrounding poetry in the Middle East, and especially in the Arabic language. And this is a totally apolitical question, but is, does that have to do, I, I know that um, Arabic language has a history of kind of spoken poetry, but do you think it also has to do with the fact that not everything can be articulated in those cultures? Well, yeah, I think, I think there's three, at least three reasons. I mean, first of all, um, those are still uh, societies without universal literacy in which most communication remains oral. Secondly, um, most things have to be said indirectly, um, you know, because you can't, you know, you know, say these things. And then thirdly, they have a great tradition of this. And so they have the ability to say everything directly or indirectly. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. I'm going to be in Egypt in two weeks. We're doing a huge cultural exchange there. Uh, and it's largely literary. And we were bringing you know, American novels. And they kept saying, well, why aren't you bringing poetry? Uh, because, you know, and so we actually changed the program for Egypt because it's, you know, poetry is the way of doing it. We're also translating for the first time into Arabic, a book called Fahrenheit 451, uh, which I think is a good book for that, you know, I mean, I think it's a very meaningful book, you know, for Egypt uh, to read. And Bradbury has written, actually, a special introduction for the Egyptian readers. 
Uh, so, but you know, but it is you know, poetry is read on the radio. I mean, it is a you know, it is it is a it, poetry's position there is very much like it was in 19th century America when someone like Longfellow was a national figure and his birthday was a national holiday. Thank you. Yeah.